college is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. Happy Friday, everyone. Larissa here. I wanted to just take a minute, well, a quick two minutes, really, and give you a sneak peek into the Magnus Fellowship. We're currently running a course with Dr. Jared Stout. It's an eight-week course on Newman's idea of a university, and it's a really great course, and last night's was exceptional, really. So I wanted to just give you a two-minute snippet from that course for your enjoyment. And if you like it, magnusinstitute.org for more. So Newman, and and I I want to share this sermon with you, but Newman actually said, I want university students to be moral and I want them to be holy. And so what I would really envision is all of this happening under one roof, that you would have a university, you would have a college, and then you would have either a parish, chaplaincy, or monastery, or whatever it is, a religious body, and that these things would act in conjunction with one another. So that a student would be receiving intellectual formation from the university, moral formation from their residential program. That's a huge thing that is lacking for our Catholic universities in the United States. And then they would also be receiving spiritual formation um, from the church. So don't think that Newman did not care about moral or spiritual formation. He certainly did. um, But he just wants to be clear on what, what is the university really aiming at? Um, And so if you remember, it was the dissemination of universal knowledge, right? He did not see the university primarily as a place of research. And he said, you know, there there are places focused on research, you know, like academies. Um, We might think of research institutes or think tanks and and these, these other places. American universities, some Catholic universities as well, have really taken on that role. I mean, there are some universities that are primarily focused on research now at this point, and professors view teaching as an afterthought. Well, it's really whatever I'm publishing, whatever research grants that I'm getting, that's the focus. And yeah, to, to get these research grants, I also have to teach a couple of classes and I will get that over with. And my TAs will take care of most of that for me anyway, my teaching assistants, right, which, which are graduate students, right? And so it's the professors at a lot of universities today are are just more focused on the advancement of knowledge rather than the dissemination of knowledge, right? So that acts uh, contrary to Newman's vision. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Magnus Podcast, joined by Larissa Bianco. This is John Johnson. Hello, Larissa. How are you? Hey, John. Good. How are you? I'm good. Very happy to be taping these with you for another exciting season. Great work on the podcast so far. As I am want to do, I heard we have over 60,000 downloads so far and counting. That's really amazing. In a world where everybody has a podcast and we too have a podcast, people are listening. They are. So thank you. Good job. (laughs) All right. So I'm very excited about our guest today, Dr. Gary Hartenberg. Director of the Honors College at Houston Christian University, formerly Houston Baptist University, and now appealing more broadly, and really an exciting program within a college. Welcome, Dr. Hartenberg. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks very much, John. Thanks for having me. Please give us an elevator pitch, if you will, uh, of the Honors College at Houston Christian University. The Honors College is the university's campus-wide honors program. Uh, It works with any of the majors that uh, we offer at the university. Uh, The university has majors in very practical things like nursing, engineering, business majors, all the way through uh, fine arts, uh, music, uh, all the humanities, sciences. uh, And the Honors College is a way for students in those majors Uh, to complete all of their liberal arts core requirements at the university through, you know, specially designed honors classes. So the university as a whole is very committed to the liberal arts and to liberal arts education. 
Our core is about 45 credit hours, and that's whether you're doing honors or the standard liberal arts core. Uh, and in the in the honors college, we approach the study of the liberal arts through study of the great books, uh, starting with Homer and trekking all the way through to the 20th century. I think the most that's uh, sort of the author we read that's closest to the present day is probably Solzhenitsyn. Um, and uh, the court, the classes are designed as uh, seminars with a professor. Uh, a student described to me the other day on the way out, he's like, I finally figured out what you guys do in class because we don't lecture. Uh, and he, I was like, oh, this will be interesting. I was like, what do we do? And he said, you make our lives difficult. And I was like, yes, that's a, that's a good way to, to put it. Yeah, my job in the classroom is to make your life in the classroom difficult. Um, outside the classroom is another, uh, uh, another uh, uh, side of things, though. So we do a lot of mentoring in the Honors College. So every student in the program has a professor who serves as his or her mentor. And that, that's very important. Uh, it's a pretty substantial relationship. Uh, it's not just like come to my office hours if you want, but you know, uh, I'm here for you and, and let's meet and let's talk and uh, get serious about life. Um, that's really exciting. And Houston Christian University is foundationally Baptist, but diverse in the most beautiful way. A large percentage of Roman Catholic students and tolerance all around a lot of cross-pollination? I would say definitely so. So uh, every faculty member at the university is required to sign a statement of Christian faith. Uh, it's called the preamble uh, to the to the university's bylaws. Uh, it's, it's basically, one way to summarize it, is it's the Apostles' Creed. Um, and so it permits uh, students of, or, or faculty in, in any great Christian tradition to, to sign on to it. Uh, students uh, at the university do not have to be Christian, though a majority of them are, and that's definitely the case in the Honors College as well. Wonderful. And within the Honors College, how quadrivial uh, is it as well? Uh, Obviously, yeah. just um, seminar, me seminar method, limited class sizes, something that any, any graduate from one of our endorsed institutions can really appreciate. Uh, but obviously, everybody has their own spin and flavor on how they do the liberal arts uh, yeah. from, from the MacArthur to the John seniors and everywhere in between. Yeah. What's, what's the honors college take on liberal arts education? So I would say the way that we cover subjects is primarily determined by the books that we select for the, what we call our reading list, which is just all the books. If you line them up from the first class to the last, uh, uh, there's about 130 books that, that we read. Um, and, uh, so the subjects that we cover really depend on, on those texts. Uh, uh, from time to time, we'll offer elective seminars on specialized topics. Um, but, uh, but the main way that we cover the liberal arts is through the study of, of great books. Um, and so our faculty, there are about 10 faculty who teach in the program. Uh, we meet on an ongoing, regular basis to talk about the books that we're offering to our students for their consideration, their study, and their contemplation, and, and make sure that we're not doing them a disservice by uh, excluding ones we we, wouldn't, we shouldn't or including sort of frivolity or anything like that. Um, so, uh, I, yeah, so we don't have a quadrivium. Uh, we do read selections from Newton's Principia. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, so um, uh, that's, I guess, one way to put it. How about Euclid? We don't do Euclid. Uh, okay. So it would probably maybe different from others in there. Um, so, uh, yeah. And, yeah. And I would, you know, jumping ahead a little bit, I would say uh, Aristotle wouldn't mind the way we do things. So I was just right. re reviewing some things this morning, and I was actually struck by the omission of mathematics from his own stated you know uh curriculum for for children uh and uh it, it just it jumped out to me today in a way that it hadn't before that is interesting let's talk more about that you recently authored a book called aristotle education for virtue and leisure out now by classical academic press 
Tell us about your book. It's part of a series they publish in, I think it's called The Giants in the History of Education. Uh, there are a couple other books in the series uh, covering figures like Plato. Uh, there's one on, by a colleague, by my colleague Lou Marcos on C.S. Lewis in there um, and, and some other figures. Uh, so they asked me, hey, would you write one about Aristotle? Um, and so, yeah, I, I wrote uh, a book. It's not a long book. It's probably about 120 pages. Uh, and uh, it's it's on Aristotle's philosophy of education, uh, as distinct from, say, Aristotle's philosophy in general. Um, uh, it does have a I draw a lot on his ethics, because ethics, of course, is strongly connected to how we teach, what we teach, the development of children in particular. Uh, so it draws a lot on Aristotle's work in ethics, and his work in ethics is uh, second to none uh, in the history of philosophy. So, so the book covers his um, his sort of philosophy of human nature or his anthropology, um, a general overview of his philosophy of education, and then I cover uh, his view of the curriculum, what a what an educational curriculum should be. Uh, there's a chapter on how that connects up with various ways of teaching, the pedagogies connected to the curriculum. And then I have a couple of short chapters at the end tracing some elements of the history of how his educational ideas have been adopted in various places, and then some considerations of what we might take from Aristotle today. All right, awesome. I just ordered the book, so I apologize <laughs> for not having read it in advance, but I am excited to read it. And let's get into the theoretical here with a okay. Magnus podcast softball, if there ever was one. Uh, and I hate irony, by the way, but a softball for you. What is education? Just kidding. That's not a softball. <laughs> no, I was going to say, wow. I, <laughs> people have been known to swing and miss in softball. Um, so that's true. So let me. Uh, Say so I don't have to say this for the rest of the interview. I'll try and answer as best I can from Aristotle's point of view. Great. Um, so Aristotle would see education as the the teaching and the learning uh, that takes place between teachers and learners, between teachers and students. Um, and he has a pretty sophisticated account of what teaching is that I think thankfully you can sort of leave by the wayside if you want to. Um, I mean, he pretty quickly in trying to explain how teaching is even possible, uh, he, he gets into some pretty uh, deep metaphysical weeds. And I sometimes, you know, I, I talk to teachers and I'll ask them like, how, how, is, how is, do you teach? Like how, what is teaching and how is it possible? And they're like, of course I teach, like I, I teach every day. And I'm like, well, yeah, but I want to know, like, philosophically, like what that means, how you think that's possible, how it's possible for a student to be ignorant of something. And then after a certain period of time and in interaction with you, they go from being ignorant about that to not ignorant, right? They've acquired some understanding or some knowledge. Uh, and it's it turns out to be really difficult to describe that. I mean, the difficulty is maybe best illustrated by Aristotle's teacher, Plato, who in the Mino has to appeal to this, you, even if you agree with it or not, he has to appeal to this pretty wild theory that we already know everything that we have ever known and that our soul is immortal, right? Wow. So uh, that's kind of the lengths that one in one direction has to go to to explain how teaching is even possible. Insofar as it's a remembering. Yeah. So I think uh, from my understanding, though, what, another way to address this question of what is education, I think Aristotle thinks of it primarily as the, um, and I, I hesitate to use the word transfer, transference, but it, it's the passing on of knowledge from individual teachers to individual students. Um, or to what end? Uh, so for Aristotle, it's for people to be happy. Um, he thinks that uh, happiness is the ultimate goal of human beings. And so if your education is going to be worthwhile, your education has to help 
human beings become happy. Um, and That's beautiful. And so the, I don't know if Aristotle uses this word, you probably would, but transfer. So the Greek, there'd be what paradidinoi, the handing, the handing on. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, the, so what is it about the handing on and receiving of certain little perspectives on reality that helps draw the recipient of that into a fuller appreciation of reality? And what is it about that that would make one happy? So that's a a really good question. I think at the... so. What we would call the primary and the secondary levels of education. So, the educating students, say, up to 18 years old. Um, Aristotle has things to say about this. They haven't been very influential in the history of education. Um, uh, he, he tends to get overshadowed by Plato. And then uh, he's also overshadowed by himself in the sense that he wrote a number of wonderful books that don't necessarily, in his own view, figure into the education of children. <clears throat> um, but he does have some things to say. And <clears throat> his his idea for teaching children, you know, five years old to 18 years old, is that basically they should uh, learn some, uh, be instructed in uh, gymnastic activity, like what we would call physical education, play, maybe some sports training uh, there. Uh, they should also get in. They should also be taught to read. They should be taught to write. Uh, they should be taught some drawing as well, and they should be instructed in music. Uh, again, this is about uh, five to eighteen years old. Uh, he he has a, a passage where he's talking about this curriculum, and he says, and then from you know uh, when the, in the in the middle of their teen years, they might have some instruction in other subjects. Now, he doesn't really say what those are. But again, he only gives it about three years, so they're not going to be uh, very in-depth. Um, so there is one sense in which, for Aristotle, students, when we're teaching them up to the age of 18, we are really just teaching them reading, writing, music, drawing, and physical education. Um, now, you might think, well, the the content of the reading, that'd probably be where most of sort of the cultural heritage is passed on in a sense. Um, but he doesn't really talk very much about that. Um, he thinks that one way to put it, I guess, would be uh, prepare the students uh, to, I mean, learn on their own might have bad connotations, but prepare the students once they reach uh, a, adulthood around the age of 21, prepare the students to uh, be become wise and prudent and knowledgeable uh, on their own, but in a community and and with their friends. Uh, so uh, he does have thoughts about a kind of informal education that takes place among all adults. Um, in the Greeks, this was uh, primarily through the theater, uh, watching in particular tragedies and comedies. You know, we're, we're familiar with these. Uh, the Greek theater, as well as the Greek symposium, the, the Greek drinking parties. Um, but he doesn't think uh, children uh, before 18 or before 21 should be allowed at, uh, at the drinking parties, obviously. But he also doesn't think they should be allowed to watch the comedies in the theater, because the comedies in Greek uh, theater were, were pretty crude, uh, crass, uh, admittedly hilarious, right? But th there is that level of, if you've, if you've ever read Aristophanes, uh, you you can oh, yes. think about what Aristotle's uh, talking about. Some uh, things never change. Is, no, yeah. You, you, that, that's true of uh, education and fights about education. Uh, you, yeah. you mentioned a big word, prudence. To what extent is virtue a con constitutive element of what Aristotle would think of education? So prudence, uh, in Greek, the word is phronesis, uh, or phronesis, depending on whether you're like me from the Midwest, and I had to be <laughs> taught to stop saying phronesis. But uh, so phronesis uh, is prudence or practical judgment. It's the virtue that guides our deliberation about what to do. 
And according to Aristotle, this is in a way the key virtue for educators. Um, we have to aim at this, but we can't aim at it directly. Um, mm. It's not something that we can sort of give a lesson on. The main thing we have to do is provide students with experiences in which they can learn by doing and provide them with examples of people who have a phronesis for them to imitate. Uh, so he thinks that's the best way for students to begin to acquire. He thinks probably you don't fully develop the virtue of phronesis until your mid-20s at earliest, and maybe even 30 or 35. Um, because, as he says, to, to develop this, uh, this virtue of practical judgment, you need a lot of experience in the real world, right? N not necessarily the real world, uh, but in the, the world of practical affairs of day-to-day -day life. Um, so, so it's the central virtue that he thinks uh, educators ought to aim at. Though we ought to realize, if, especially if we're dealing with uh, primary and secondary education, that our students are not going to possess this virtue fully, at least, when they graduate from our schools. But they should be set up to uh, continue to acquire it uh, on their own, in their lives, right, in, in whatever practical affairs they, they decide to go into. Isn't that what Socrates calls a sophronistes? Or a temperance guider, someone who, someone whose job is to guide the student towards temperance and prudence, and it's exactly what you said about imitation. You can't teach your students virtue if you are not a virtuous teacher. And I think you made note of that in your book in talking about imitation, the importance of imitation and being a guide through that perfect example. Or not perfect, but right, yeah. Uh, that's that's very consistent with what Aristotle says. Uh, the teacher cannot pass on what he or she doesn't have. Um, so teaching is not uh, even. So that's I think definitely the case in terms of character development and virtue development. But Aristotle thinks it's even the case in terms of intellectual things. Right? I can't teach you things that I don't know. Uh, I can't even teach you things that I only have an opinion about. Um, but uh, so if I'm going to teach students things, uh, I have to have knowledge of that myself so that I can uh, um, sort of actualize the potential for students to know that in themselves. At the same time, how is a teacher co-actualized alongside his student? So the teacher is performing not just as comprehensor, but is co-viator on the way to something. And it's certainly the case, right? As teachers, I, I've experienced this, you've experienced it. I'm sure that you are actualized as patient by your students and by the texts that you encounter and the questions that you ask. So in what sense is the teacher also being actualized at the same time that he's teaching the student? Hmm. I think it's different for uh, what might be uh, lower grades, uh, younger students, uh, and, yeah. and college-level students. So obviously, I teach at, at the university. I teach primarily undergraduates. And, and I think because they are, uh, these students are, right, 18, 19, 20, some 21, 22 when they graduate, uh, there is a level of maturity and even experience of uh, the practical affairs of day-to-day -day life that they have, um, uh, and even uh, some knowledge of uh, theoretical subjects that, that I don't, right? So I have classes, and there are chemistry majors in the classes, and sometimes it's necessary in our discussion to have a, a little chemistry lesson, right, from the chemistry major. Uh, so, so I learned that as well. Um, but I, I, I don't want to demean children, uh, but Aristotle thinks, right, that, uh, I don't have a lot to learn from them. Uh, now they can ask questions and keep me sort of open to wondering and keep me from becoming a cranky old man, right? And things like that. And those are probably even more valuable, uh, 
But I, I think Aristotle thinks there are definite limits to the way that teachers and students, maybe put it this way, the way that teachers and students are equals. Uh, he doesn't think that they really are. Um, uh, not in the majority of cases. Yeah. In what sense is metaphysics something that all this primary education prepares us for? I think Aristotle says you can't can't really do it until you're like 35 years old, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, well, he's Plato's clear about that, that yeah. you shouldn't do philosophy. And so I think in the Republic, you start at 35 and you might end when you're 50. And, you know, you're really only doing the advanced philosophy around 50 years old for Plato. So I'll, I'll say this is a, uh, I don't know if controversial is the right word to describe what I'm about to say, but there are, I, there are people who disagree with me about this. My reading, when I read the passages in the politics that Aristotle wrote talking about his philosophy of education, is that he's he's not like Plato in this respect. He's not aiming for our students on the whole to go on to some advanced study of metaphysics. Um, he doesn't really say anything about um, the necessity to have this kind of higher, what you might call platonic theoretical knowledge uh, that that Plato says, you know, the the leaders of the of the city and the state have to have if they're going to govern well. Aristotle, I think, is content simply that the leaders possess practical judgment that they have phronesis. Um, they don't need uh, what he calls Sophia, right? This contemplation of divine eternal truths. They don't need that in order to rule well. Um, now he doesn't. He does think that cities shouldn't. They obviously shouldn't forbid this study, uh, and they shouldn't prevent it, and they should provide for it when when they can. But my own view is that Aristotle doesn't think it should be required uh, of the say the rulers in the city, or or even it shouldn't be an educational goal for everyone to go on and become familiar with. You know the material that he covers in in his book Metaphysics, but it, it, with the ethics, especially, there's certainly this teleological direction of education to to terminate in contemplation, theoria, and friendship. What role does that play in education as an end? It's it's the end for for Aristotle. The goal right. of education should be enabled to enable students to contemplate eternal divine truths. Uh, so they can't do this automatically. They need training in this, and they need the development of specific intellectual virtues to accomplish this. Um, however, right, he doesn't think that is the only happy life. Uh, he talks about the sort of the lesser form of the happy life, which sometimes goes under the name of the active life or the practical life, the political life, right? The one where we're involved in contributing to the affairs of our political communities. Uh, he says that is also a happy life, though he uh his preference, his judgment about which one is happier is that the contemplative life, the philosophical life is happiest. Yeah. He also is willing in his book, The Politics, at least, to include appreciation of music uh, in uh, as sort of part of the happiest contemplative life. Right. He say he quotes a passage from Homer something to the effect of like the best life is when men are seated at a at a at a dinner at a symposium uh, drinking the wine and then the bard comes out and and recites you know gives a performance of a song and he's like that that's that's it there's there's nothing better than that precisely because it's it's the 
the OTM versus the negotium, right? It's being not at work. It's it's leisurely. There's something about leisure that is the end of education and a requirement for happiness. So how does yeah. that square with Aristotle's vast practicality that he's noted for? Like, hmm. At the end of the day, he wants us to not be at work. Right. So I, I think two distinctions are useful there. So the first is the distinction between uh, useful and useless work. And uh, the second is the distinction between the contemplative and the practical. Mm. Um, and maybe there's a third distinction in there about the nature of leisure itself. Uh, leisure is not just what we happen to enjoy doing in our free time. So a leisure activity, according to Aristotle, is an activity that we undertake for this, the, the, act, the sake of that activity itself. Uh, so his paradigm example is philosophizing. And by that, he, he means thinking truths that are eternal and unchanging. Uh, uh, so we might even call this theology uh, in a certain sense. <clears throat> um, but uh, the idea is that leisure isn't just, <clears throat> excuse me, the idea is that leisure isn't just free time to do what you want. Uh, leisure is a time set aside for activities that are worth engaging in their own right. Hmm. So that, that's one distinction to keep in mind. The other, the distinction between useful and useless, uh, where useless, uh, I put on the sort of the, the positive or the even more positive side of the useful things. So Aristotle says leisure activity you know, this philosophical reflection or this appreciation of music, uh, anything that's worth doing for its own sake, he says, uh, that is what makes life worth living. Um, and it's in a way useless, right? There's there's no use to it. Uh, he says it's the kind of the sign of a of an uneducated mind to, to want to try to make, to reduce everything to what's useful. Um, now, he himself isn't opposed to learning useful things. This is part of his primary and secondary education, right? If you're going to, you're going to have to do some things that are merely uh, matters of we need to get them done in order to go on living, in order to get to uh, live together. So the basic skills, reading, writing, uh, you know, the, be, being in, in good bodily shape, uh, those are useful things. And uh, they're even, in a way, useful virtues, right? So the virtue of courage uh, is is a useful primarily for defending our city. Um, we don't really need the virtue of courage, he says, when we're at peace. Um, so there is, in a sense, uh, an idea that some of the virtues are even useful uh, more or less. Um, and that, so all of this is distinct from the the difference between uh, the practical and the contemplative. Sure, uh, I would say about at least half of our seven hundred and forty plus fellows in the Albertus Magnus Institute are studying with us because they realized at some point they're in their twenties or thirties usually, and they realized at some point that they'd been trained for usefulness. And sometimes very well is in, in engineers, law lawyers, doctors, whatever, military. But they have not been educated in the sense that we're talking about here. And so besides join the AMI fellowship right now at magnusinstitute.org, <laughs> plug, what would you say is the best way for somebody who is what we would call a young professional, you know, starting off a family? And wanting to be educated in the useless arts in the most beautiful way, really toward the end of theory, contemplation, happiness, and all the beauty therein. Mm. What's the best practical step that you would recommend somebody like that to make or something that they could read? Where where does somebody like that start? Because that's that's a big chunk of our audience. 
think the best practical step, the one that comes to mind at the moment, is you have to set aside time for this. Mm. Um, I mean, we talk of in the in the ways about making things a priority uh, and and that that sort of thing, but. I mean, at, at at bottom, right? It's a it's a matter of time. So even if you're not very good at appreciating music, uh, and but you have a, an interest in it, you think it might be valuable, um, then you've got to set aside time to develop that appreciation. Um, and even if you think, well, I'm not very good at philosophizing. Uh, well, that that's going to take time as well. So, uh, I mean, it's not real groundbreaking stuff, but um, setting aside time for it. Uh, and I'll mention one one thing that I try to work through in my book is the difference in uh, economies between Plato's time and ours, and Plato's culture and ours. So, uh, it's very well known that. Uh, ancient Greece, uh, Athens in particular, uh, depended on slave labor uh, for their wealth and for the the per- people who didn't work to enjoy their leisure. Um, so what happens to these ideas, these educational ideas, uh, when we rightly, right, no longer rely on slave labor? Um, I think that's a big question for uh Aristotle's philosophy of education and, and others like him. I think it's possible. Uh, I mean, I, in the book, I mentioned some uh, examples uh, of people in history who have found ways to be both part of the the practical affairs of the world and uh, engage in contemplation. Um, but we we have jobs and so forth, and uh, those those need to, uh, we have obligations more than that, right? To say, provide for family, to provide for friends when necessary. Uh, so, but finding the time, setting aside the time. And I, I guess one other thing is, uh, Aristotle is also makes it plain that we shouldn't be loners in our mm. uh, leisurely yep. activities. Yes. So that we need friends, and even just one friend, right? One genuine friend. So um, uh, I assume most of your listeners and, and people uh, at the Institute are familiar with the Nicomachean Ethics, but books eight and nine, right? If you want uh, an introduction at a, at a, a, a easily intelligible level about the nature of true friendship, you really don't get better than, than the end of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. So I totally, time. totally agree. Yeah. That's well said. And and let's be honest. I mean, it's it in one sense, sure, the Athenian government and polis depended on slave labor. But as anybody who spent an hour in corporate America earning a paycheck will tell you, our economy very much depends on slave labor as well. Uh, I guess there could be subtle distinctions, but in many ways, the ancient slave had it a lot better. The medieval slave. Uh, or serf had it a lot better than the vast majority of corporate cogs do today. That might be a controversial statement, but if you look at what the slave of old owned and was able to do versus what the average wage slave of today owns and is able to do, uh, the situation is a little more dire today in many ways. Uh, I guess the one upshot could be the ability, especially with with the internet age and and all the world at your fingertips and all the books that we can read, there is that ability to turn out of it, at least for a time in your day, and cultivate something a little bit more liberating. What would you say about that? Yeah. Uh, well, first, let me say I would I would say regarding the sort of the the comparison of uh ancient or people in Aristotle's time who were enslaved with sort of workers in the free mar- market economy today uh definitely an empirical question like who in a way had it better off i, I don't think there's going to be a kind of 
an answer we could come to in matters of reflection. Um, yep. But there are, I mean, you and and maybe in a sense it it doesn't. It, I think the value of of bringing that up is: are, are we really have we really escaped from sort of markets or, or economies that don't depend upon lots of people doing most of the work for a few others? Um, uh, so th- I think that's a good question to raise. Um, and and having made that caveat, I realize I've forgotten the question you wanted me to answer. Yeah, I think I did too. It, oh, I, 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 <laughs> I mean, who has it better is is one question. But what's what's the upshot uh, of somebody in today's position of say wage slavery? Yeah. No. Uh, well, I easier? I do think we probably have more time. Um, yeah. Uh, even if you, uh, one of my colleagues uh, who I mentioned before, Lou Marcos, uh, he he mentioned to me that he he's he thought that even if you compare professors at universities today to professors at universities a hundred years ago, uh, we we would riot and strike over their working conditions, um, and and not just sort of in terms of the quality of living, but in terms of how much work that they were asked to do. Uh, there's a reason many of them were were not married. Uh, and it was because the job was pretty all-encompassing. Um, so I, I think that we do probably have more time today. Um, and finding something worthwhile uh, to, to do. Now, I mean, you can, I think you can broaden sort of the scope of what is considered worthwhile or what can contribute or be part of a leisurely activity uh, and still keep the spirit of Aristotle's goal in mind. Uh, The important thing is that we not get caught up in the uh, sort of cycle of I, I need to work so that I can have time off so that I can go back to work um, and, and just fall into that. And it's it's very very difficult uh, to to work against that, and I think again that's why friendship is is really important um, uh, to have others uh, who can engage in uh, you know it, it's better I guess one way to think about it I'm not sure that this is true the chess aficionados might come after me but it seems better to play chess against a human opponent than a computer one right. The computer opponent isn't going to be my friend, uh, but I might spend my time, my leisure time, uh, playing chess with a good friend, and nothing will come of that. We'll just be good friends, and we'll have spent our time well in leisure and have done nothing useful, and that is the culmination of the human life, according to Aristotle. Well said. So breaking out of utility breaking out of even friendships of utility, and then ultimately asking this great philosophical question, and that is why. And that, right. that why will always inspire contemplation and cultivate leisure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Wh- whatever you can wonder about, another of Aristotle's uh, um, insights, right? Whatever you can wonder about can become an opportunity for spending your leisure time well. Beautifully said. Let's talk about you a little bit. This has been a really beautiful conversation. The time is flying by. Tell us your story. I mean, I've 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 seen a little bit of your work and and read about it, but you so tell us about how you found yourself to the Orthodox. Looking back on it, I don't think there is much in way of I want to do the, the sort of the the theological and some philosophical differences between orthodoxy, Protestantism, uh, Catholicism. So I, I don't want to gloss over them. Sure. But, uh, for me, it was having a local community. Um, it was also, uh, as a philosopher, I think it's important to, to say this. I almost said admit this, but I'll, I'll say it. Uh, the the girl I was dating at the time, who is now my wife, was going to an Orthodox church. So there's yeah. always that, right? Um, so, but I I actually 
take a, in a way, a, a very, I don't know how to describe it, in a way, a very low view, well, not low view, um, ever since the schism, I think it's extremely difficult to discern the church on earth. So the Orthodox have a saying, we know where the church is, we don't know where it's not. And I don't know if there's a similar saying among the Catholics, right? Uh, uh, right. I know where the church is, I, I don't know where it's not. Um, so, uh, but I find orthodoxy to um, to meet uh, the sort of a standard of, it's not, there's, I don't have to affirm anything logically contradictory in, in order to be orthodox. Uh, I don't have to sort of cross my fingers and, and affirm arguments I know to be invalid uh, in order to affirm orthodoxy. Uh, so, and, and for me, if, if you want to talk about what it's reasonable for people to be, uh, th that is, is my standard anyway. Um, now, there's, there's probably something self-serving about that, uh, but I... I honestly don't know of a better one. Um, and I also don't want to, right, I want to take to heart, right? I really don't know where the church is not. Um, so, um, uh, and and again, right, the, the what, what we mean by the church, uh, do we mean sort of the presence of the Holy Spirit working in people and in communities? Well, that seems to be happening across denominational and traditional lines. Um, though I'm, I'm no judge of that, but I do have the right to reserve judgment about that. So yep. I try not to. Um, so uh, yeah, I think sometimes uh, students who know that I'm Orthodox, they come to me and they say, oh, I'm learning about Orthodoxy. And I'm like, yeah, okay, uh, I'm probably the world's worst apologist for orthodoxy that you'll ever meet. Because <laughs> um, one of the things that I think is important for students to do, especially if it, it um, uh, in this way, is you you have to know what you're leaving uh, just as well as you know what you're going to. Right. So I think I've known people who have converted who have had regrets, uh, which creates difficulty in life, um, in which. I, they were converting from one religious tradition to another, and they were very excited about their new religious tradition, but they hadn't really thought about what treasures they were leaving behind in their old religious tradition. Um, mm -hmm. And as life goes on and they realize a lot of the problems I was trying to flee from my previous religious tradition just seemed to be in this new one as well. Um, uh, you know, then it's like, well, what what actually was the basis for my choice and my decision. And, and you know, uh, so I encourage people who are thinking about these sorts of transitions to say, well, if you're a Baptist and you are seriously considering becoming Anglican or becoming Roman Catholic, Catholic um, what do you know about your Baptist faith? Right? Um, how, how's, how deep do you know that? Because um, Obviously, the faith that you're considering is going to look a lot better to you if that's all you're reading and that's all you're studying, uh, and you don't really know what you're leaving behind. That's beautifully said. How important was the liturgical and mystagogical aesthetic to you in your conversion to orthodoxy? I, I find that that's what does it for a lot of Protestants. Hmm. The beauty and immersive and yeah. the, the immersive nature into the liturgy and the aesthetic that that brings them that brings them up uh well up i don't want to i don't want to be pejorative but that brings no, them yeah up. no yeah and uh let's just say the lord works in many and mysterious ways uh so for some people that works and for others it's it's not so much i would say for me personally it's more of the I don't know the opportunity that the liturgy provides for uh, sort of 
I don't know, coming face to face with God. So there, there is some sometimes this uh, misconception that, oh, I, I went to this church and like the sky opened and, and that sort of thing. And I was like, well, okay, but try going to the same denomination like in the next town and and see what it is that you're really into. Like, are you into the aesthetics of this church, like this building, this parish? Or are you is there something that is transcending that, that this is reflecting in a certain way? Uh, and I don't necessarily mean that to be sort of determinative of what you should or shouldn't do, but just try and be aware of there are uh, sort of good and bad uh, examples of, of of the same liturgy. So that no, I mean for me the the sort of the mystical. I wouldn't describe myself as a mystical person, as a, as a sort of uh, someone who's like, oh, I just the the awe and the beauty of the liturgy swept me away. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think I'm too cranky for that. To be honest, like I'm like. Why is this so long? It's <laughs> actually been one of the most yeah. <laughs> fruitful. Like, I don't know. This is so I'm a philosopher. I'm not a theologian. There are differences. But one of the most fruitful lines of theological inquiry for me has been, why is this liturgy so long? Uh, and then talking with very pe- various people. And when I can convince them that I know I mean this in a serious way, like, why are we doing everything that we are doing here? And there are people, and they're saying stuff, and there are other people who are singing stuff, and so forth. Um, you know, why do do we need it? Um, and uh, so, yeah, so <laughs> but everything that's teaches. kind of what I'm thinking about. It all teaches, right? The more you just swim in it, it's so liturgy is so educative or anti-educative, depending on where you're where you're going, right? Have you heard the story of Flannery O'Connor's husband's conversion? No. It's pretty cool. Uh, you know, they were Protestant, and finally, one day later in life, he decides to just convert out of nowhere to Roman Catholicism. And, and I'm going to grossly paraphrase and probably butcher this anecdote, but they all say to him, Well, why'd you convert? Was it the preaching? Because no, no, the preaching was just terrible. Wow. Well, it must have been the community. We're really nice people, right? It's like, no, you guys are totally rude and you fight over parking spaces as soon as you leave, as soon as you're coming into the church and, you know, just terrible. And how about the music? No, it wasn't the music. Music's terrible too. Well, if all this is so bad, why are you becoming Catholic? And he says, well, I knew that if everything was so bad and people kept showing up, There had to be something real in that tabernacle. And there's a lot of truth to that. There is uh, the sacramental reality of Christ dwelling with his people and authenticating that experience, I think, is is really what, I mean, it's God who causes people to convert and draw, draw them into himself, right, in the flesh. What do you make of that? Yeah, no, I think there's something definitely to that. That uh, oftentimes the 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 spiritual nature of the church of the liturgy um, that these even by Christians who are participating in them tends to get reduced or talked about in other in other terms. Um, uh, so. One one way that this was brought home to me was very early. Uh, I might have even been before I became Orthodox, uh, but I um, uh, there there was a number of people. This would have been in the early two thousands uh, in our particular uh, Orthodox church who were considering joining the church. Uh, many of us eventually did. But there was a a sociologist at a local university who was doing research on this sort of phenomenon of young, relatively young people uh, converting to uh, various, um, uh, as you put it, sort of high church kind of denominations. Yeah. And so he came and he was talking with our priest and our our priest actually happened to have a, a doctorate in philosophical anthropology from Oxford, right? So he was also conversant with this uh, sort of research. 
And he asked the potential researcher, he said, um, what if sort of like the 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 people in, in this church, what if what if the what if my flock wants to say that the reason they became Orthodox is because they felt and were following the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And the researcher, the sociologist, who himself was a Christian, right, he replied and he said, well, I'll be looking for other more proximate reasons. And I, like it was at that moment where I was like, oh, oh okay, I, I get that it's easy to make something sort of seem what it's not if you won't allow for what I take to be the central motivating reason. Um, because then it can become, well, why did you become this or that? Well, the liturgy was beautiful, right? Yeah. Um, or the, the priest preaching was convicting, or I was there because I felt at one with the congregation through partaking of the Eucharist and, and that sort of thing. Um, but if you're not allowed to say in, in aloud in the sense of it's it doesn't make sense to the sociologist, well, I'm here because I'm following God. Yep. Um, then then I, it, things sort of become unintelligible uh, from there. So, yeah, the, why are we all here? Well, because the Eucharist must be real. Right? I mean, that, if, if that's a, sort of the, the, um, <clears throat> the summary of, of the story you shared. So, yeah. Well said. Yeah. And you can't be, as an Orthodox, you can't beat the holy fire. I, I, that's the one. <laughs> I, as a Roman Catholic, I am so envious of the holy fire. I'm like, we should have that. I mean, we we got the Saint Januarius blood and all that yeah, stuff. Right. Like we yeah. we have our we have our share of really cool miracles, but the holy fire. I mean, have you ever seen this in person? You ever want to? I have not been to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre to see this in person. I can say that. Um, it is one of those things that is what I guess you would call it a, a pious belief in orthodoxy, um, because there are orthodox Christians who are like, hmm, I'm not so sure about this. So uh, have fun reading the Wikipedia article. about Right. Or you can the, you can YouTube it of these guys getting the holy fire just lit up spontaneously and they put it in their beard and the beard doesn't burn and their yeah, skin right, right. Yeah. burn. Yeah. It's like, wow, this is a pretty impressive one you guys have. But at the end of the day. You know, your faith can't be based on any one pious tradition or sign or miracle. Uh, it's 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 a it's a higher source than that. Uh, that seems gonna, right. Or, yeah. or you're going to be really longing when that when that physical consolation is removed for whatever reason. So, but more beautifully, I I'm just so impressed with your. I mean, you 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 came to orthodoxy. And you're teaching at a Baptist college, and that was that was okay. And that, and 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 you still you still direct the program, and you're doing great work. I won't mention the name of this school, but AMI was in discussions with another Protestant liberal arts college, doing a lot of good things in many ways. And then you know we asked them at some point, what happens if one of your students reads her way into another faith tradition or were to become Catholic. And they said without hesitation, well, that student would be removed from the college. They would be, they'd be dismissed. And that struck me as completely illiber illiberal and, and really antithetical to the direction of the tradition in many ways. And frankly, we would have had the same response from a Catholic school. If the Catholic said somebody reads their way into Protestantism and they're going to be dismissed like that, there's something there's something unhuman about that, and I guess I'm more impressed than anything uh, at the fact that the the program in Houston allows for such cultivation and and celebrates it in a way that is really human and promoting of of liberal education in the in the best sense and benefiting from that diversity. Yeah, and I think uh, a lot of the Credit for that goes to our university president, Robert Sloan, um, and uh, and the culture that he's created here. Um, it's and and there's a you know uh, interested people can go to the university's website and and um, it shouldn't be difficult to find the page that uh, was put out last September when they announced the name change about 
sort of the university's historic connection to other Baptists. And it's it's actually not as straightforward as as one might assume from the name. Um, uh, but even right, I, I mean, it, I think among Baptists, right, they're one of their core values is you know liberty and soul freedom, right? So yeah. obviously yeah. they're they're not happy with all the choices that everybody makes. That's also not Baptist, um, but to allow people the freedom right, to make those choices, and then as best as we can to remain in community and a shared educational endeavor uh, with each other. Um, you know, I uh, I had a student, a Christian student, can't uh, come to me about a year ago. This is one of this, uh, uh, um, a student I had gotten to know well, and, and the student said to me, I'm not sure I believe in God anymore. Uh, and my response was, in a way, and I, I didn't want the student to hear this the wrong way, and I don't want our listeners to hear it the wrong way. But my thought, my first thought was excellent, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, we're, maybe we're leaving behind some things, and we're we're going on to something better, something more mature and, and grown up and stronger. Um, and as far as I can tell, continuing to to be part of that student's life, right? Things are going in that direction. Um, but it, it's difficult. It's it's always a difficult balance for institutions to to sort of have uh, in terms of okay, well, this student seems to be now at odds with our professed aims and, and ethos, even. So, what do we do with them? Um, so, I'm just thankful to be at a place that allows faculty. Uh, you know, I describe myself here as a theological guest. Um, so I, uh, and and one of the things that's very useful and advantageous is is the way that we teach seminars. Um, so I don't have to lecture on theology, and and we can all read and discuss these works together. Um, uh, so so that that's useful as well, and and I think it's ultimately uh, beneficial to students. I I do have experience, um, and and again I been in higher education administration long enough to know that these questions don't have easy answers. There are decisions I would come down differently on, like I, I think I probably agree with you about uh, sort of uh, the what would happen to a student sort of question. Um, yep. But it can also keep students uh, sort of um, from from being open about the questions that they have. Right. If right. they're afraid, right. oh, I can't let anyone know I'm actually thinking about the status of the Virgin Mary. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, okay. Well, what what sort of uh, kind of uh, educational even, what kind of educational environment is that going to foster? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, well, this has been amazing. And, and thank you for taking the time. I want to encourage people to buy your book. Uh, Aristotle Education for Virtue and Leisure out now, available on Amazon to deal 12 bucks. Got to get that one quick. And and then the Honors College at Houston Christian University. So that's hc.edu slash the Honors College. Is that right? Yes. Or just, just yeah. find it. hc.edu slash Honors College. hc.edu slash Honors College. I think it's a worthy uh, endeavor. Uh, there might be a particular kind of student who would really thrive here. And I'm wondering if somebody like you or faculty at the Honors College might ever be interested in moonlighting as an AMI senior fellow. Are you well, allowed to do such a thing? There, there, there are plenty of faculty here, myself included, who are always interested in you know, spreading the good news about liberal arts education. And uh, its place for creating value in, in human lives. You know, I think that's what it comes down to. Great. Looking forward to having that discussion. Uh, really, really impressive work, and uh, really want to dive in more to what what you're doing down there. And hopefully, we can meet in person soon. So, Dr. Gary Hardenberg, thank you. This has been amazing. Larissa's internet dropped out, so for her, I'm going to bid adieu, and hopefully this is not the last time we speak. Uh, welcome you on the podcast anytime.
Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Besides your book, real quick, you want people to find you on Twitter? What's your, what's your handle there? My Twitter handle, where I mostly post nonsense, is uh, my last name, but it's H A R, the number 10, 1 0, B U R G. So Hart Tenberg. I got the pun in there. So uh, I love puns. Clever. Awesome. MagnusInstitute.org to learn more or join the fellowship today. Dr. Gary Hartenberg, thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2023, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.